Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. And we'll be looking this morning at the life of the Samaritan woman. The subtitle of this section is Jesus Talks with a Samaritan Woman. I have the privilege of talking to Jimmy about every, about every other Tuesday. Jimmy is one of my dearest friends, and over the course of the last 30 years, we've talked a lot. And uh, I would say that now that he's gone to Budapest, uh, I have more time to do my work at Independent. Because he and I chat about three times a week, but he seems to be doing very, very well. Now, beloved, as we go through this text today, we're going to be looking at several questions to our strength and to our encouragement. One of the questions that we'll take a look at this morning is, why did Jesus leave um, Judea? Secondly, we're going to ask the question, who is this Samaritan woman and why did Jesus feel the necessity of going and ministering to her? And then third, we're going to ask the question of why was she thirsty? Now, as we take a look at this whole issue of why she was thirsty, we're going to be asking ourselves the question of what were the idols in her life? She was a woman who was very, very thirsty spiritually. And we want to understand why she was thirsty. There was a day and time several years ago that I was following Lauren Roberts at the FedEx St. Jude Golf Tournament. Sally and I were out there together. And Sally said, do you think we need to take some bottled water with us? And I said, oh, absolutely not. We don't need any bottled water. I don't want to be carrying that stuff around. And she said, do you have any money on you in case I get thirsty? And I said, oh, absolutely not. There'll be a mini bank out there. I'm sure that if I need to get a dollar or two from the mini bank, that, um, that we can do that. And so we proceeded on and we followed Lauren Roberts for his round of 18. And there was no bottled water that I could find. And there was no mini bank of which I could go and draw money from. And I remember finally getting back to 18 and how thirsty Ed and Sally were. And we couldn't wait to go into the clubhouse and get the largest thing of sweet tea that we could possibly find. Have you ever been thirsty like that? Very, very thirsty physically. But, beloved, have you ever been spiritually thirsty like that? There's a promise in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst, for they will be satisfied. In another translation, it says, they will be filled. This woman in John 4 is a woman who was very, very thirsty. And again, this morning, as we take a look at that, at her, we'll begin to understand what this thirst is. Let's turn now to John chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to read just the first three verses at this point in time. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more into Galilee. Let's continue in verse 4. And now as he had to go through Samaria, he came to a town in uh, in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired, as he was from his journey, and he sat down by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. Beloved, as we look at this, we begin to see that Jesus is going to minister to this woman, and he wants to quench her thirst. Matter of fact, as we, as we begin to struggle with, this, with the text and wrestle through it and break things out from us, he says to her, woman, if you knew who I was, you would understand that I would give you not just water, but living water, living water that would spring up within you. Wells of living water. And Jesus makes a promise to her at this point. He says, I will come and I will quench your thirst. Now, beloved, it, there's, a, there's a real distinct point here that I want to make that John Piper makes in light of this text. He does not say that he wants to obliterate the thirst. He says, I have come to quench the thirst. We are a thirsty people. We are thirsty for the gospel. We are thirsty for the cross. We are thirsty to live in the light of God's glory. We are thirsty to know that we're people of kingdom and purpose and destiny. We are thirsty to know that we have been forgiven of our sins and that we are right with God. Jesus did not come to obliterate, but he did come to quench. If he had come to obliterate, we would come to Jesus one time and one time only. We would receive the water of life that he has for us, and then we would never have to return to him again. He did not come to obliterate. He came to quench. For as he comes to quench, folks, we have the privilege day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, to continue to come to Jesus in relationship with Him, having that thirst quenched because we have recognized the grace that He has given to us. Let me stop for a moment. Are you a thirsty people? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness knowing that you will be filled? Are you a thirsty person and do you come to Jesus daily to receive from Him the water of life that He has for you? Are you a thirsty people and you have understood that indeed His hand of grace is upon you and that we have the opportunity as His men and women to draw from Him daily? knowing that as we draw in the light of grace, we will be satisfied, we will be filled. That's one of the lessons of John 4. That's one of the lessons of the Samaritan woman. And, beloved, that's one of the lessons that we need to wrestle with today. Now, go back to verse 1, if you would, just for a moment. I want you to see... In verse 1, let me read these three verses for you again. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And when the Lord heard this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he's leaving at this point in time because crowds were leaving because um, of the baptism. Jewish leadership 
was saying, where they were trying to downgrade the ministry of John. So Jesus departed out of necessity, for he did not want to create a competitive scene between himself and John. And then notice in verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired as from his journey, and he sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. I want you to see this very first phrase, he had to go. In the New King James Version, this translation would read, but he needed to go through Samaria. If you break out the Greek word at this point, it means this. There was, by necessity, compulsion, destiny. Jesus had to leave where he was, and he had to go to Samaria. There was, in the course of his life, a divine call to go to a specific place and to minister to a certain woman who needed to hear from him. In a sense, Jesus was called. In another sense, Jesus was driven to go to, to Samaria for the purpose of ministry and to go to, the, to Samaria for the purpose of mission. There was in the life of Jesus, how shall I say it, the consciousness of, defi- of fulfilling the divine plan. Turn over in your page to John 4.34. And we read this. There's a discussion concerning food, and Jesus says this, My food, says Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Beloved, what does food do in your life and in my life? It, it imparts satisfaction. Food is that thing in which our body delights in. It is that thing in which our body, in some sense, takes joy. What was Jesus' food? His food was to do the will of the Father. His food was to do the work of the Father. His soul delighted in the very thing that God delighted in. I wonder, can you say that this morning? Can Ed say that this morning? That my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and that my food is to finish His work. Valentine's Eve. Sally and I drove to Oxford to go to City Grocery with some friends from Memphis and some friends from Jackson, Mississippi. And it was a great and glorious evening of fun and fellowship and tremendous food. And we got back in the car. We're driving back into Memphis and we're talking about how fun and how great that evening was. I wonder, has the will of God for you ever been a dining experience? Has the will of God for you ever been a dining experience where you have entered into his will and his work and you have known that you are a soldier that he is using in the light of his kingdom? And it has been something that you have delighted in. 
Remember the phrase John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Beloved, isn't it true that more often than not, we're most satisfied in light of our dining experiences, in light of our worldly experiences, and not in light of the will of God? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Jesus was satisfied to do the will and the work of the Father, even to the point in John 4:34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. My food is to finish his work. What is the will that ought to concern you today? It is God's will. What is the work that ought to, to, to concern you today? It is God's work. And what is that work that ought to concern us today? It is leading people to the living water. It's leading people to the Lord Jesus. It's helping people to find that Jesus will not obliterate their thirst, but he will quench their, first, their thirst. It's bringing people to the Lord Jesus. It's seeking and saving the lost. It is bringing people into worship. It is bringing people into an environment of evangelism, into an environment of discipleship. This is the food, beloved, that ought to satisfy us the most. Do you understand the esteem that the, that the Son had for the Father's work? And do you understand the devotion that the Son had for the Father's work? You see, in these first couple of verses, it says this, that he had to depart for certain reasons, and he had to go to Samaria for the sake of ministry to this woman. And it was a divine compulsion that calls him to do that very thing. Now, let's continue through the text if we could. Notice verse 7. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who is it that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Verse 13. Jesus answered, Anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give you will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give you will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband 
What you have said is quite true. Jesus goes into Samaria, and we see that he is sitting by the well, and that Jesus is exhausted from his journey, a journey of about 93 miles. Why was Jesus tired? Beloved, Jesus, as Charles Spurgeon says, Jesus was tired due to, the, due to their sins. Jesus was tired due to their, in, uh, their formal worship, due to their self-righteousness. Jesus was tired in light of their unbelief. Jesus was tired because of their resistance to his ministry. Jesus was tired in light of their resistance to the Holy Spirit. Jesus was tired in light of their sinful cravings. Jesus was tired because of their rebellion, their pride, their lust, their unbelief, and their self-centeredness. Jesus is tired in light of their sin. But this text says, though he was tired, he waits. What is the application of that for the way that you and I should be living today? Jesus is tired. Yet Jesus waits. Jesus is tired. Yet Jesus waits for the sake of ministry. And as he waits, we see this ministry being fleshed out in the life of the Samaritan woman. And I want you to see that this Samaritan woman comes alone at noon to the well. It was the custom of the day that she would not come at noon, but she would come during the early hours or during the later hours, during the coolness of the day, to draw water for the day for bathing, for washing, for drinking, etc. But this woman had to come at the noon hour of the day. She had to come at the heat of the day. She had to come when no one else was there because she was a woman whose life was marked by shame. For she was a woman who was a moral outcast. There was the stigma of being used, the stigma of giving herself away, the stigma that she had given herself to multiple men. And she was a woman who was very, very fearful. I want to stop just for a moment. And I want you to begin to see the variety of people that Jesus would minister to in the course of his lifetime. And we don't have time to to flesh this out person by person. But here's Jesus ministering to the Samaritan woman. And who was this woman? She was uneducated. She was a moral outcast. She had no social influence. She was immoral. She was poor. She had a simple folk religion. She was, as we said a second ago, she was a Samaritan. And Jews didn't speak to Samaritans. She was a woman. Jesus was a man. Basically, she was of no account. Do you see who else Jesus ministers to? If you go back just a few verses to John chapter 3, Jesus is ministering to Nicodemus. Jesus is ministering to a man who is educated and powerful and respectful. He's a man who is upright, and in the eyes of many other men, he is moral, he is educated, he is trained. Nicodemus is the pillar of the community. 
Nicodemus is a Jew, he's a man, and he's a ruler. Do you see the variety of individuals that that, uh, Jesus would minister to in the course of a few days? People that were of no account, people that in the eyes of the world that were of great account. And what is the principle for us this day? Jesus ministers across the board the saving facts and truth of the gospel of Christ. What is my application for you this morning? My application is simply this. Who do you minister to? You only minister to those people that live in Germantown or Collierville? Or are you willing to go into the inner city and to minister to those people that are smelly and dirty? Understanding that those people in the inner city very much need the gospel of Christ just as much as those people in Germantown and Collierville. Do you understand the variety of people that Jesus ministered to? And are you ministering to those people also? Do you understand that Jesus had to go into Samaria and minister to her because he understood the divine commission that had been given to him? Beloved, do you understand the divine commission that has been given to you and your opportunity is to move into the world in frontline ministry and to minister to these people? Or do you sit here and you only expect to be ministered unto? Jesus said, I did not come to be ministered unto, I came to minister. And beloved, that is true. If you're a believer today, that is true for everyone that is within earshot of my voice this morning. Yes, we are ministered unto, but we are called into ministry. And as we are called into ministry with the gospel of Christ, our privilege is to move in the light of an environment of sovereignty, spreading the seeds of the gospel to all who would hear. You see, Jesus, over the course of his ministry, ministered to many. And as he sits and as he is sitting by the well and the Samaritan woman comes to him and the Samaritan woman speaks to him in verse seven and eight and nine. And Jesus speaks to her in ten. What's, what does Jesus do for her? He gives his time. He gives his speech. He gives his grace. He gives his truth to her. And here's a point that I want you to understand this morning. Beloved, for Jesus, Jesus will violate the social taboos of the culture to engage in conversations of eternity. Jesus will violate the social taboos of the culture to engage in conversations of eternity. Let me ask you another question. Are you willing to engage in conversations of eternity? What is the position statement of this church to reach the world through maturing Christians? Are you willing to engage in conversations of eternity? And second to that... Will you do, in the one sense, 
Whatever it takes, will you break any social taboo for the sake of ministry in the culture, for the sake of ministry to the lost? Stanley Jones says this, Religion is man's search for God. The gospel is man's search for man. There are many religions, but there is only one gospel. The gospel is as God's search for man. Notice in verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who is it that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. What is this living water that Jesus speaks of at this point? Again, John Piper says this, it's the soul-satisfying grace of God. It is that water, that truth, that God can give to satisfy our soul. Why are you here this morning? Because when you open up the Word of God, your soul is satisfied because you know that indeed it is God's truth. And you know that this is a Word that has been given to us that is full of life. And as that word in the light of the Holy Spirit flows into our lives, it quenches our thirst and we're allowed to drink deeply from the wells of salvation. You'll notice in verse 15, the woman said to her, Sir, give me some water so that I don't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. At this point, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, she is missing the point. Nicodemus might have understood the point, but Jesus is making the point that the water is the soul-satisfying grace of God. How do I flesh this out? How do I break this out? I would say it this way. It's the empowering nature of the Word in our lives. That the Scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for instruction, for encouragement, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's the empowering nature of grace. Titus chapter 2. It is grace that teaches us to say no to the things of this world. And in essence, it is grace that teaches us to say yes to the things of Christ. It's the empowering nature of the Holy Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the empowering nature of the transformed life. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And why was the Samaritan woman missing the point at this very point? Beloved, it's because of Jeremiah chapter 2. Turn your Bibles, if you would, just for a moment, to Jeremiah chapter 2. And let me read for you this verse. This is the section dealing with Israel forsaking God. And in Jeremiah 2, verse 13, we read this. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. They have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You see what Jeremiah is saying? People have committed two sins, and this is us. We have forsaken him, the spring of living water. 
we have dug our own cisterns, cisterns that cannot hold the water. The Samaritan woman had forsaken him, the spring of living water, and the Samaritan woman had dug uh, her own cisterns, cisterns that could not hold the living water. She had rejected the living water. She had rejected the grace, and she had endeavored to self-supply her own water. And what does this mean? It means simply this, that we are always looking for other ways other than God to satisfy our own sinful pleasures, our own sinful delights. This past week I was in San Diego for a couple of days and I was at P.F. Chang's during the course of the evening and I opened up my fortune cookie at the end of my dinner on Tuesday where I was sitting by myself and my fortune said this, you will enjoy good health and financial independence tomorrow. Well, I did enjoy good health. I don't know that I had financial independence by Wednesday. But isn't, what, isn't this basically what we hope for over the course of our lives, to enjoy good health and financial independence? And what the Lord Jesus is saying to us in light of the Samaritan woman is that our opportunity is to drink deeply from the wells of salvation. Our opportunity is to no longer dig our own cisterns and to drink from a water of self-supply. But, beloved, our opportunity is to drink from Him and that He is our food and that we love doing His will and His work. You see, Jesus is getting right at the point of, of all that's going on with this Samaritan woman. Notice verse 15. The woman said to her, Sir, give me some water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Notice the abrupt, the abruptness of verse 16. He told her, Call your husband and come back. Jesus is asking her to identify her broken cisterns. And the broken cisterns of the Samaritan woman was simply this, multiple men on multiple evenings. Five or six uh, men, five or six husbands. She was looking for love in all the wrong places. And what were the broken cisterns of her life? She was longing to find meaning in relationships. She wanted to find meaning in belonging. She wanted to find meaning in being warm at night. She wanted to find meaning in having some place to go. She wanted to find meaning... In these things, and beloved, in one sense, it sounds very benign. But wrong reasons that are fueled by wrong motivations are deadly. Wrong reasons fueled by wrong motivations are deadly. And this woman, having an idol in her life, was drinking from cisterns that could never satisfy her. Let me ask you a question. What are the broken cisterns of your life? What are the idols of your life? Family, career, wealth, social status, bigger house, golf handicap, peer acceptance, being part of the inner ring, Athletic success, financial success, going to the right college, having the right pedigree, having roots, having 
uh, establishment in the community? Or maybe like the Samaritan woman, is your idol, is the broken cistern of your life, relationships, being warm at night, having a place to go, having a place to belong? Are you looking for love in all the wrong places? These were broken cisterns that will never hold water. And when we try to drink of the water of these cisterns, this water will never satisfy. And Matthew 5, 6 will not become true in your own life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So now I come to the application of our talk this morning. What are the idols of your life? John Calvin, a great reformer, of the, obviously the Reformation, said this, Our hearts are idle factories. Your heart is cranking out more idols than you can possibly keep up with in light of prayer, confession, and repentance. Your heart is an idle factory. What is an idol? Tim Keller says this, anything to which we give attention, allegiance, affection, and or adoration, which appropriately belongs to God alone. Anything that gives attention, allegiance, affection, and or adoration, which appropriately belongs to God alone. The purpose of an idol is to give you meaning, fulfillment, protection, control, and significance. Your heart, my heart, is an idol factory. How do we identify the idols of our lives? Let me give you some of the ways to identify the idols of your life. Get in your car by yourself. Cut your radio off where your mind goes to. That's an idol. There's some other questions that you may want to ask. What, make, what are your fears? Your fears are your idols. What makes you angry? The source of your anger is your idol. Where does does your mind go when you're in solitude? What does suffering and pain reveal to you about your real gods, your idols? What does your schedule say about your real religion? Where would you spend money without hesitation? Or finish this this sentence. You're nobody till somebody blank. You're nobody till somebody loves you. You're nobody till somebody admires you. You're nobody till somebody worships you. You're nobody till somebody looks up to you. Or another one, I will love and serve God if blank. He comes through for me. He provides for me. He sustains me. Whatever it is. Beloved, your heart and Ed's heart is an idol factory. And in John chapter 4, in verses 14, verses 15 and 16, that is exactly what Jesus is saying to this Samaritan woman. 
What are your idols? In conclusion, I have a question for you this morning. And it's a very simple question that I really want you to wrestle with this afternoon in the quietness of your home, possibly next to a fire. Into what well this morning have you dipped the bucket of your soul? Into what well this morning have you dipped the bucket of your soul? If we had a few moments, maybe next time, we would flesh out the remaining of John, remainder of John chapter 4, and you would begin to see that Jesus was telling the Samaritan woman that she needed to dip the bucket of her soul into worship. And in one sense, for us at the the beginning of the 21st century, that sounds like a very odd thing. But I want to challenge you and I want to encourage you that you dip the bucket of your soul into the Lord Jesus. That you dip the bucket of your soul into worship. Not only corporate worship on Sunday morning at 9.25 and 10.55. But I want to encourage you and challenge you to dip the bucket of your soul into private worship daily. For as you do, you will find that indeed it is Jesus who will satisfy you. Larry Crabb, a counselor, says it this way. In worship, worship is the critical event of our lives. For it defines who we are. And your privilege, daily in private worship, corporately, in weekly worship, coming to this place to hear Jimmy preach and the other ministers on staff preach. As you come in and you engage and you participate in worship, as you come in and you're part of worship and you're drinking deeply from the well of salvation, you're understanding that Jesus indeed is your Lord and Savior. As you are doing this and giving glory unto Christ for all the things in our lives, is a defining moment. For you will remember that Jesus is your Savior. The Father indeed is your Heavenly Father. The Holy Spirit rests with you and you're a man or woman of kingdom, purpose, and destiny. In conclusion, Jesus had to go through Samaria, for he had a divine calling. Where is Jesus calling you to go? Jesus was weary due to the sins of the people that he was ministering to, yet he, is, he still ministered to them. Jesus is weary in that human sense, but beloved He's our Savior, and He still ministers. And though you are weary, are you ministering to a lost and dying world? Jesus had multiple conversations with multiple types of individuals. The gospel is for everyone. To whom are you ministering the gospel of Christ? And then last, what are your idols? 
And are we, as God's people, bending our need? Bending our knee and saying no to these broken cisterns and yes, only, only to Christ and his word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you and we acknowledge and confess that there are things in our lives that give us meaning, fulfillment, protection, and control and significance other than Christ. Father, there are things in our lives to which we give attention and allegiance and affection and adoration other than you. And Lord, when we do, in essence, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. Father, forgive us of our sins. And let us look to Christ. Lord Jesus, forgive us of our sins and our idol making. And let us look only to Christ. The author and the perfecter of so great a salvation. Father, we confess to you our broken cisterns. And we thank you that as your people we come to a well that we can drink from and we will drink from that well for all eternity and that water in and of itself will spring up in our lives unto eternal life. Thank you for so great a salvation. Thank you for so sufficient a salvation. Thank you for so comprehensive a salvation. In your son's name we pray. Amen.